It's time for Run, Bambi, Run. An Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. When we left off last, Lori was telling her Italian stallion that she wanted to escape Teichita. And she was not joking in the slightest. She told him to go see her parents, and he drove through the snow to Milwaukee. And when he got there, he claims her parents were already pretty deep into planning her escape. Her parents were the only people she really could count on. Chris says Mr. Cop-turned-Carpenter was a pretty quiet guy, but Lori's mom, Mrs. Short's too tight, she was a piece of work. She looked like like a, a really lovely grandmother, but she also had that little edge to her, you know, where her eye would dip a little bit and you'd say, oh man, I, I'm not going to piss her off. Lori and her mom had demands for the Italian stallion in this prison break. There was no chance that Lori was going to get pregnant on the lamb. She was still a nope on kids, so he needed to get a vasectomy. I mean, I'm being serious. He says he was told this. He was also responsible for getting IDs to get into Canada. Mexico was too far away, and Lori was way too famous to stay in the U.S. The best IDs were real birth certificates, but in the names of people who had died. And where would he get these names? By sneaking around a Milwaukee cemetery after midnight. Here's another bit of his memoir. I had a nephew who died at two days old who was buried in this cemetery. I had to rub the pain from my chest while staring at these cold stones. This is wrong, my brain shouted. But it was all for the greater good to free Lori. It was definitely wrong. He was standing in a graveyard stealing names from dead babies. Lori's thinking was he could take those names and the birth dates to titles and records and get some new reissued birth certificates. Here's Jan Ubelher, a reporter who covered all this for the Sentinel. We just couldn't believe this thing kept getting weirder and weirder. I mean, you know, you can't make this stuff up. They take the identities of a couple of kids who had died in infancy, I think. How did they even like conceive of this? Um, but yeah, I think it was really painful for that family, you know. It, All these years later, someone has grabbed her um, identity. Yeah, I thought it was really in poor taste. Poor taste or not, Lori was getting out of here. They had their birth certificates in their new names, Jennifer Vogel and Anthony Gazzana. They'd flash those at customs officials and just say they lost their passports. But look, they had real birth certificates. Lori's very devoted parents also provided a getaway car, a green Oldsmobile. They packed it with clothes left over from her disco dancing cop days. They even lovingly placed a first aid kit in the trunk, just in case their little girl got hurt while running away from prison. This is Run Bambi Run, an Apple original podcast produced by Campsite Media. I'm Vanessa Gregoriadis, and this is Episode 7. On July 15th, 1990, at 8pm, Lori said she had to do her laundry, as usual. But when the guards did the 9.25pm headcount, she wasn't there. A guard went to the laundry room, and he saw that a window was open, and the screen had been cut through. Once she had jumped out the window and run to the perimeter of the jail yard, getting over the fence at Teachita was actually pretty easy. 
Here's Keith Finley. He's a lawyer who works with prisoners there. There was sort of this notion that the women, the female prisoners, were a little bit more genteel than the men and uh, weren't as big a risk. And therefore, Tachita had a feel a bit like a community college campus, except it had a fence around it and you couldn't leave. Even though it was the only women's prison in the state, it, it was not a fortress. Then she was over the fence, and it was only a matter of minutes until she was sprinting to the Oldsmobile, slamming the door and taking off. Officers searched through the night in heavy brush, but it was obvious that Lori Bambenek was long gone. Lori was cruising away from Wisconsin and crossing into Minnesota, speeding down the highway with her Italian stallion, listening to some yacht rock on the car stereo. Well, according to Nick, that's what they were listening to. And according to Nick, after they put that music on, she ran her elegant fingers over his crotch, unzipped his fly, and leaned over. But according to Lori's account, there was no yacht rock. She was never a mellow person, and definitely not right now. Lori wanted to listen to metal, Guns N' Roses. That's what they were playing in the car. And she probably didn't give Nick a blowjob either. She had her eyes on the prize. Freedom. Where is Lori Bambenek? Police say they strongly suspect the couple had outside help. Call it a Bambi network. Yeah, detectives were looking for Bambi, but they were also looking for whoever helped her. Uh, We think that there is a potential that there were other people that may have aided them in some degree. If anyone is found to have knowingly given assistance to the couple, they could face charges of aiding and abetting an escapee, which carries a possible five-year prison term. Detective's first thought was actually Chris Radish, who was just at home with her kids. All of a sudden, there's cameras, television cameras, helicopters flying over the house. One part of me was like, this is hilarious. But the other part of me is like, oh, yeah, Lori called me. I was the last person that she spoke to. So they're like, what did you talk about? We talk, I, I made banana bread, and she wrote a poem, and the kids are not wearing diapers anymore. That's the kind of stuff we were talking about. And they were like, oh, okay, so you didn't know. You didn't help her plan it. And I'm like, come over and look at me. I'm standing here with an old sweatshirt on, and there's vomit on my shoes. No, I really was kind of busy this week. I didn't help plan an escape from prison. Chris Radish wasn't involved. So detectives moved on to Joanne from grade school, and they met business. I lived out in the middle of nowhere. We had 120 acres out in a in uh, wooded area. It was just country land, and... Uh, The police called at midnight. It was midnight. I picked up the phone, and uh, they said, you know, Sheriff's Department, walk out the door with your hands over your head. And I walked maybe about 30 feet, and they said, turn around and don't look at us. Put a a gun to my head, and, you know, you could see the the reflection of the bright lights in the midnight sky on the gun barrels. They said, is she here? And I said, no, there's nobody here. I have two dogs and a cat. You know? I remember leaning against the wall and falling down on the floor and and, and just screaming. I, I, I never had a gun to my head before. But it didn't matter how much they threatened Joanne. She really had no idea where Lori was. So where'd they end up? Welcome to Thunder Bay, Ontario, a city that combines natural beauty with a vibrant metropolitan lifestyle. Should you choose to leave it all behind, you can enjoy the wilderness 
in unspoiled territory. It was paradise. As Jennifer Vogel and Anthony Gazana, our fugitives started their new lives in Thunder Bay. They rented a basement apartment for 500 bucks a month. Lori got a kick out of all the new 1990s technology, high-tech stuff, VCRs, fax machines. They also got themselves a cat, and they named her Lori. The Italian stallion enjoyed fishing in the Great White North, maybe a little too much. Lori complained that she was bringing home the bacon while Nick was putting worms on hooks. I can see her point. She'd taken a part-time job teaching aerobics and a full-time job, too, as a waiter. She put on a white shirt and black slacks, gliding between the orange vinyl booths at a diner, the Columbia Street Bar and Grill. Well, she was definitely the brains behind the operation. She wished that she had chosen a real partner, but there were kind of slim pickings in the lobby at Taichita. As for the Italian stallion, he found Lori confusing. She was headstrong and hard to read. And he said, insatiable in bed. After all, gender role reversal was her thing. So it wasn't exactly domestic bliss, but it beat the hell out of being locked up. And everything was quiet for three months. But then, this one tourist from California came through town, and he stopped to eat at the diner. While Lori was taking his order, he got up the nerve to try to flirt with her, chatting her up as she stood there with her pad and pen. Lori blew him off, but it was too late. She'd made an impression. Then, one night after he left Thunder Bay, maybe he was reclining in his lazy boy, just eating a microwave TV dinner, and he flipped on America's top crime-fighting program. You might know where they are right now. They're America's most wanted. He was like, wait a second. That's the chick who dissed me in Thunder Bay. I gotta call into this hotline. Hello, and thank you for calling the Hot Tip Hotline. Do you have information about Eventually, the tip made it all the way to an investigator in Canada. He ambled over to the Columbia Street Bar and Grill just to ask some questions. When he confronted the cute waitress with a blurry, faxed printout of her face, Lori acted confused, shocked. She was like, I'm a Canadian. I've never even heard of anyone named Laurencia Bembenek. He seemed to buy it. And when he walked out, Lori turned to her manager and laughed. She said... That guy must think I robbed a bank or something. Ha ha, big joke. But as soon as the manager went back to the kitchen, she snuck off and called Nick. He rushed over to pick her up. They immediately hit the road and they raced into the wilderness, never to be heard from again. Just kidding. That's probably what they should have done. But they had some loose ends they wanted to tie up. Nick wanted to return a boat motor that he'd borrowed. And Lori, just after so many years in prison, she was really attached to the idea of personal belongings. She didn't want to leave her stuff behind. So they headed back to their apartment. They were packing whatever they could fit in the car, like a hairdryer, coffee pot, curling iron, when a Canadian Mountie showed up. Red jacket, Stetson hat, that whole getup. They surrendered, without a fight. In fact, they sat down and chatted with the Mountie until reinforcements showed up to arrest them. Nick even had a beer before they were taken into custody. And then, Lori was locked up again. Thunder 
Bay finds itself in the national spotlight today as two U.S. fugitives were discovered hiding in plain sight. Escaped murderer Lorencia Bembenic and her accomplice Nick Gugliato were apprehended at their home and taken into custody. Reporters from the United States quickly flew to Canada in tiny planes, rushing through heavy turbulence. On the jailhouse steps, it was like one of those scenes you've seen in movies. Journalists jockeying for position and interviewing whatever looky-loo showed up. If they would have got past America's Most Wanted, here you got two people starting fresh at the age of whatever they are, like a couple 18-year-olds starting over. The woman who rented Jennifer and Anthony Gazana their apartment in Thunder Bay, she was there too, and she had a question. I'm the landlady. Would you ask her what I should do with her cat? A news organization even paid for Lori's family to fly up to support her, as long as they granted an interview. Ben Benick had limited visitors today, although her parents were allowed into the prison. Her parents, yeah. There were questions about their role in the escape. Mrs. Bembenek and her husband have denied all along they've had any contact with their daughter. But nothing ever happened with that. There was so much love for Lori now. She was the underdog, the American folk hero, raising a middle finger to the man. All of Milwaukee is talking or singing about Bambi. This is when people printed up those Run Bambi Run bumper stickers and held rallies saying she was innocent. Now that she needed protection, she wasn't a terrifying ice-cold model. She was Bambi, a little deer who they needed to set free. But meanwhile, back in jail, she was devastated. She was totally alone in a foreign country. Chris Radish. I I packed my little suitcase from Oconomowoc and hopped on a plane, and off we went to the detention center, and it was like being in a the entry to a kind of sleazy nail salon. And I got to see her and, oh, gee, she just, she really looked horrible. She looked like she had been sick for a really long time. She said, Jesus Christ, I'm on the top bunk and everybody's sick in here and the the air conditioner's blowing on me constantly. I'm freezing. She looked like a little icicle and she was very thin. So the stress of escaping, being caught, only having a few months of freedom, and then being in the detention center not knowing it just totally took its toll on her. I was mortified. She was. She looked like a shadow of the woman I had seen. I remember leaving, um, and I, you know, you, I can't break down when I'm in front of her, but I remember going outside and I just cried for a while. I'm like, oh God, she, you know, is she even gonna live through this? The state of Wisconsin was pressing for extradition, but Lori was adamant that she wouldn't go. On Thursday, Ms. Ben Benick's lawyer announced that she would be applying for refugee status to avoid deportation. Lori decided her best bet was becoming a political refugee. She claimed that she'd been the target of a political persecution set up to take the fall for murder. And she wasn't going back to the fascist courts in the United States to get screwed by those bullies a second time. If you want to know the truth, the Italian stallion claimed that she'd been planning to do this all along. That's why she specifically picked Canada to run away to. I looked up these UN regulations for refugees. They say you have to be experiencing, quote, a threat to life or freedom because of race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership of a particular social group. Lori was convinced she qualified. 
this refugee plan attracted attention. And a lot of important people now had major questions about what the cops had been up to in Milwaukee. Okay, before we get to what happened next, I should let you know, Nick Gugliotto and Lori broke up. He did a short prison stint for the escape, and he was sort of pissed that it was pinned on him and the media when he saw himself as a pawn of the Bembenic family. And he thought it was sort of shitty for Lori to put him and her parents in the line of danger, which, yeah, that wasn't the greatest decision. Either way, Lori didn't look back. New information was still coming in, and she still had Ira Robbins, her pimp-mobile pitbull, acting as her mouthpiece. Just listen as the truth floats to the top of the cesspool we call our criminal justice system. Most importantly, people were beginning to understand just how messy the investigation had been and how badly the cops had mishandled the evidence that put Lori on trial. You've got the ex-wife of a police detective. And how does this crime scene get handled in the first, you know, 24 hours of this investigation looks really, really funky. Dean Strang is an attorney in Wisconsin who represented Lori later in her life. You might have seen him on a big TV crime show. He defended Stephen Avery, another famous Wisconsin convict. So he appeared on Making a Murderer on HBO. Dean is shocked that Fred was allowed onto Christine's crime scene at all. You shouldn't be participating in the crime scene. You know, you're too close to it. Nobody's going to assign you to investigate your ex-wife's homicide. It doesn't seem to have played out that way. By his own account, he doesn't get home until 6.30 in the morning or something like that. And this is called into the police at about 2.30 in the morning. Strang is also concerned about the way Christine's body was handled. The medical examiner isn't called until something like an hour and a half after the death is reported to the Milwaukee police. No. (laughs) That's beyond atypical. And it runs afoul of statutory duties that the medical examiner's office has with scenes of unexplained death. They're on the list of call immediately. The medical examiner, Elaine Samuels, was an odd bird, almost a stock character from an 80s movie, The Bizarre Scientist. She had thick Coke bottle glasses, and she was known for keeping the testicles of male corpses in jars. She also had a revelation that nobody else on the force was talking about. I found no blonde hairs. The blonde hairs have to have been planted by the police. Nobody else could have planted them. She believed they were placed in an envelope afterward. Among other anomalies, and we've talked about this before, Dean Strang also notes that Durfee throwing away his notebook is just par for the course for the MPD. Oh, I must have thrown away my notebook. That's that's a time-worn explanation you would hear. I can't find my notebook, or I guess I must have thrown it away, or it got lost, or, you know, must have gotten thrown out when I cleaned out my garage. (laughs) Few on the police force were talking, and the cops, or ex-cops who were, were saying she was still guilty, especially Fred. He was giving interviews and throwing Lori under the bus. Here's Kevin Fisher, the Milwaukee reporter who covered the trial. He had 
stated for the longest time that he thought she was innocent. But then within a year, that all changed. He changed his tune. He changed his mind. He said she was guilty, guilty of sin, and that if you're innocent, you don't run. Whoa. That certainly you know turned the tables because here he was, the loving husband. Well, <laughs> And it wasn't only Fred. Christine's mother said Lori was guilty, too. She said that Christine was actually afraid of Lori before she was killed. She didn't trust Fred's new wife. Everyone was acting like Lori was some sort of princess, she claimed, when really she was a cold-blooded murderer. Lori just kept doing what she'd always done, sounding really down to earth and explaining herself over and over. If you were going to kill someone, would you have known that the bullet could be traced to the gun? I was a cop, of course. Of course. I mean, you know, you'd, you'd throw it in the middle of Lake Michigan. You'd do anything but, but to, you know, use your husband's gun and bring it home. Why don't you just put up a neon sign? I mean, that's crazy. Even with all these questions bubbling up, what Lori said just didn't matter. The Canadian courts refused to call a former American cop a victim of political persecution, no matter her gender. They wanted no part of an international fiasco. She'd have to go through the regular U.S. court system, and her new attorney would be out of Chicago. As I talked to you, I pulled out some of the file I had, and I'm looking at the motion for a new trial, and it is a hundred... 48 pages long. Sheldon Zenner. Our position was that after years of exhaustive independent investigation, we had uncovered exculpatory evidence that exonerated her, that the wig presented as evidence at trial could not be connected to Ben Benick, that the alleged murder weapon presented at trial could not have been the murder weapon, that due to police ineptitude, the bullet allegedly removed from the victim could not be shown to be the bullet allegedly removed from Christine Schultz's body. Okay, this is what the defense was arguing. The barrel of the supposed gun had been held right up to Christine's skin, but it didn't match the wound size. And that could mean that the off-duty gun might have been switched with whatever the real murder gun was. There were two guns that were involved in the investigation, the off-duty gun that was in Fred and Lori's apartment and the duty gun that Fred kept with him when he was on duty. Remember that Fred and Durfee came over the night of the murder, looked at the off-duty gun, the dresser drawer gun, saw it was dusty and hadn't been fired. But then, 21 days later, Detective Gallagher came over, had a beer, and took a gun down to the crime lab for testing. Lori's team would even later suggest that Fred's on-duty gun, the other gun that went into the crime lab that night, could be the murder weapon. The opposite of what Monty Lutz said in court. But despite Lori's efforts to redirect the spotlight to another gun, the state had a mounting pile of experts that said that the gun that Detective Gauger brought to the crime lab had fired the bullet that killed Christine. Now, was that the same gun that Durfee and Fred assessed the night of the murder? Because of the serial number snafu, we don't know. I would have loved to have known more about that, but the prosecutors didn't get back to me. In fact, the top homicide guy since 1991 not only refused to talk, he actually hung up on me. 
Okay, now, Judy's ass. That was a different matter. She was clearly a problem for the state. Judy Zess, who was the state's star witness, had consistently lied about critical facts. We also focused on Fred Hornberger, who was bizarrely a friend of police officer Fred Schultz and who seemed to us to have been much more likely to have been the person who committed this murder than anybody else. It was far from a cut-and-dried case. You have to remember, she had counsel. It was a very high-profile trial. There was enormous amount of attention given to it. <clears throat> and the prosecutor's office had succeeded. And then she appealed as far as she could through the legal system. And those appeals were denied. So to try to persuade a court system that the system has failed is very, very difficult. But as Lori's ordeal dragged on, events on the ground were beginning to expose fissures in that system, and especially within the Milwaukee PD. Just maintain law and order in the community. What was it that began to test Chief Harold Breyer's grip on law and order? It was the police killing of an unarmed Black man. The man's name was Ernest Lacey, a victim of mistaken identity. A 22-year-old going to get a snack at the corner store, and the cops killed him by putting a knee on his neck. This was about 40 years before Minneapolis cops killed George Floyd the same way. Some question as to how much force was used by a police officer who says he put his knee on Lacey's back to subdue him during the arrest. That made one demand, and that's that the officers be suspended. And we will get justice! When protests broke out, Chief Breyer stormed in. He just pushed right into the middle of an angry crowd as they were chanting, Fire Breyer, he's a liar. And sure enough, the snowballing effects of this unrest, they eventually led to Breyer's resignation. Yet, the department was still stocked with Breyer's men, guys that he had trained and nurtured, the same guys who helped put Lori away. So it was pretty much business as usual until the summer of 1991, which is when something happened that would change the way the MPD was perceived forever. I got a call from a source who said to me, Annie, you got to come out to 25th and State. There's a guy that looks like he's been saving body parts in his apartment. This is Ann Schwartz, an author in Milwaukee. She was the first reporter on the scene of the Jeffrey Dahmer crime. Dahmer had been killing people, 17 and all, for years. But he only got caught the summer Lori was in prison in Canada. I drove to 25th and State and got out of the car. It was just brutal hot. Brutal hot. There was a crowd of people in front of the building that Jeffrey Dahmer lived in. These people were all huddled together, just hands over their mouths and just kind of staring at the building. And then all of a sudden, these guys in, in hazardous materials, outfits, and they're taking out the barrel and the refrigerator. Um, the medical examiner showed up, took the boxes, each of which held a skull, and put them in the back of his car. You're watching this, 
and you're just incredulous. There really is no other way to explain it. I couldn't, it was so hard to wrap my brain around what I was seeing. Dahmer had been doing this for such a long time and the MPD knew, and they did nothing about it. Emergency operator 71. Okay, hi, um, this, um, I'm on 25th and State, and this is young man, he is butt naked, he has been beaten up, he is very bruised up, he can't stand, he's study fall out, he has, he is butt naked, he has no clothes on, he was really hurt. That's a 911 call from a neighbor of Dahmer's. She's talking about a 14-year-old kid. Dahmer had drugged him, but the boy had escaped from the apartment. By the time the MPD showed up, Dahmer had come out onto the street too. And he convinced the cops that this was just a gay lover spat. And so they sent the kid back to Dahmer's apartment. Dahmer killed him hours later. It was very quickly learned that Dahmer had been arrested before for sexual assault of a child. He was on probation. The story completely pivoted from what happened to how did this happen? How was he allowed to continue? Because if you've got like a swastika carved in your head and your nutty eyes and your hair is a hot mess, you fit the bill. You're a serial killer. But you looked at Jeffrey Dahmer. Yes, he was a white male. He was articulate. He was pretty good looking. And the police were fooled by him. And there was a lot of anger, so much anger in the city at that time. I think that one of the things that the Dahmer case did is it exposed a lot of people's fears. It exposed prejudices on all sides of the equation. And it changed Milwaukee in that people said out loud the thing that you didn't say out loud. After an outcry over Jeffrey Dahmer, the good-looking white male serial killer that the cops missed, the cops were on their heels in Milwaukee in a way that they'd just never been before. I mean, that was a bomb that took them backwards. Stan Stoikovich, the criminologist that we talked to way back in episode two about Harold Breyer. He's talking about Milwaukee citizens' revulsion over the cops missing Dahmer. There was a vignette around a police response to a call for assistance for a young Asian boy. And the police were rather flippant about it, saying that this was, you know, one lover with another lover and blah, blah, blah. And they were laughing on the other end, the cops, you know. This thing took a huge step backwards for, for MPD. Now Lori's claims that the MPD was corrupt. They felt real. The city impaneled a commission uh, post the uh, Dahmer years, and I was one of the commissioners on that commission to try to look at police community relations, and what was happening, and we held public hearings on the north side and the south side of Milwaukee. They were packed, packed with hundreds, if not close to a thousand people showing up, expressing their concern about police behavior, illegal behavior. So what did this mean for Lori? She was still in Canada. She, of course, wanted a new trial. She wanted total exoneration for somebody to say that she was innocent of Christine Schultz's murder. But the prosecutors in Wisconsin still said she was guilty. She'd gone to Christine's because she wanted the house, and she'd killed Christine. She jogged back and forth from her apartment that night to commit the murder. 
Now, we timed this journey out on Google Maps, and here's what we found. At 12.30 a.m. on the morning of the murder, Fred called Lori from the police station. They had a brief conversation. She was drowsy. She said she wanted to go to sleep. Let's say they talked for no more than five or ten minutes. Lori leaves the apartment at 12.40 a.m. Depending on what route she takes, the distance between Lori's apartment and the Ramsey Avenue house is about 2 to 2.5 miles. It takes about 40 to 50 minutes to walk. She would have been wearing black, heavy-soled, police-issued shoes, or carrying them in a bag, though that would have been cumbersome. So the police theory is that she jogged, let's say, 30 minutes to get there, and she got there at 1.10 a.m. Christine was shot at 2.15 a.m., which leaves Lori less than an hour to enter the house, go through the strong box, pull the wires out of the speakers, bind and gag Christine, attempt to tie up the boys, shoot Christine, and flee the house. The boys call Stu immediately afterwards, so Lori would have had to avoid being seen on her return back to the apartment. Another 30 minutes of jogging. She'd have to have been home in time to get another call from Fred at 2.40 a.m., telling her that Christine had been shot. So it's tight, but it's doable. And there's always the possibility, I suppose, that she had a, an accomplice drive her over there. But it's never come up once, so it seems pretty unlikely. Lori's lawyer, Sheldon Zenner, said that exoneration wasn't possible, but he still was going to make sure he got her what he could. And this situation with Dahmer was just the fuel that a deal needed to really get going. But for a deal, she had to leave Canada. News Talk 1130 has an exclusive in the Laurentia Bembena case. She has agreed to give up a shot at refugee status and return to the U.S. Most think it's due to new information uncovered in the investigation. More in this morning's forecast coming up in just a moment. Lori was hauled back to Wisconsin, to the place she least wanted to see again in the world. Tichita Prison. Marshals escorted the winsome killer back to the prison she fled a year and a half ago. The former... I have the benefit of being in my well-appointed law office in a nice law firm in Chicago while she's sitting in solitary, and I keep telling her, we're not ready yet. She would send me cards and letters and occasional art, but there was a consistent theme, which was, get the motion filed. Lori was impatient. Was she going to get out of prison already or not? Was she just going to sit in Wisconsin jail forever? Give me a second while I pull the one thing I've got off the wall so that I can read it to you, okay? Yeah, I had it framed. Dated Saturday, October 24th, 1992. And it says, Sheldon, Bambi's lawyer isn't going to be smiling for long. Call or the voodoo doll gets it. So the impression given is that the little Sheldon voodoo doll who was being hung by his foot was being splattered with tomato by the woman. It sent its message pretty clearly, which was, call me and get the motion on file. But for a woman who had been convicted of murder, there's a lot of red in this painting. Sheldon was working, he says. He was negotiating with the Milwaukee prosecutors. We negotiated quite vigorously on both sides and ultimately reached the agreement we were able to reach. I accordingly find the defendant, Laurencia Bembenek, guilty of second-degree murder. She stands convicted again of killing a young woman while her small children slept in nearby beds. 
She would not be exonerated by the process we were negotiating, but she would be free. Here's the deal that was struck. She would be sentenced to time served if she pled no contest to second-degree murder. No contest is a special kind of plea. It means Lori wasn't admitting she was guilty, but she was choosing to accept the legal consequences as though she were guilty. Yeah, she would still be a murderer, but she would be a free murderer. So why'd she take this deal? Well, she says she took it because she wanted to be reunited with her parents. They were getting old, and she wanted to spend time with them before they died. Though, as the Italian stallion pointed out, she did certainly put them in harm's way by helping her escape in the first place. They could have gone to prison themselves for that. I think she took the deal because she might have actually been at the scene of the crime. It's possible. Even if it's true that the cops coached Judy's ass to set Lori up and plant evidence and everything else, it doesn't mean that Lori wasn't somehow in on the crime. Let's say it was just a botched robbery of drugs. And Lori, who was partying her butt off back then, was just a kid. She could have done a dumb kid thing and gotten involved in some sort of scheme to take the drugs out of Christine's house. The timing works. The important thing for Lori, though, was that she was free. The handcuffs were off. Here's Mike Armitage, a private investigator on her case. When they said it's over. And she kind of looked at me and looked at her attorneys like, I'm free? I can walk out now? I said, yeah, you're done. It's over. So Lori and her legal team left the courthouse. We had two different cars going out from uh, the Milwaukee courthouse. I, I was in a decoy car. The decoy thing didn't work too well. Once Lori got in the car with Mike Armitage, people were all over them. Even when we got to the first stoplight, they're jumping out of their car, snapping pictures and what have you. And Lori's in there, and she's freaking out. She, what is going on? And the first thing she wanted to do is, I want to go see my mom and dad. We went to go in the front door, and I go in right after her. And the next thing I remember is like, pow, I got hit big time, right in the mouth, hard. And it just stunned me. I'm like, whoa. And, and Lori right away goes, dad, dad, dad. He thought I was part of the press. Yeah, I've been in solitary confinement for seven months. I'm just a tad overwhelmed. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just want to, I can't say enough. I just wanted to thank everybody. It's been over 10 years and this will be the first Christmas that my mom will put up a Christmas tree. So Merry Christmas to everyone. <laughs> That evening, I take her out to, to dinner to sort of talk about the rest of her life. Sheldon Zenner again. So our advice was don't go back to Milwaukee where everybody knows who you are. Don't go back to Milwaukee where your trial was carried live on every television station. Don't go back where everybody's going to know who you are and people are going to want to take advantage of you or cops are going to want to arrest you for doing something wrong, anything wrong. Live a more mundane, quote-unquote, normal life someplace else while you get your feet on the ground. She was finally planning the next chapters of what could be a brand new life. So what path did she choose? Did she take her team's advice and keep her face out of the spotlight? 
you're already familiar with the woman who's sitting next to me. She is Laurie Bimbenek, the real-life Bambi. No. Lori being Lori did not choose to keep her head down. We'll get into that next time on the final regular season episode of Run Bambi Run. I might be sick of you, but no, I'm kidding. Ah, I'm kidding, I'm well, kidding. You definitely should be sick of me. I'm already, I'm, you know, I go through life sick of myself. Did high-level commanders withhold critical evidence? Did they deliberately fail to create reports on important activities so those reports would not be available? Certainly back in the 80s, uh, you would overlook some type of minor misconduct, especially if it's by a fellow officer who's a friend of yours. But inside the book are specifics that people have never heard. More about the murders of Christine Schultz. Can you talk anything about those? I was doing my laundry, and I noticed it was like my window of opportunity. It was my window of opportunity. Run Baby Run is an Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. It was created and executive produced by Mark McAdam and me, Vanessa Gregoriadis. Our producers are Sam Leeds and Elizabeth Van Brocklin. Ashley Ann Kridbaum is our managing producer. Our researchers are Alex Yablon and Callie Hitchcock. And our archivist is Megan Shuve. This episode features recreations voiced by Sam Winch, Julie Sher, Annie Yoakum, and Sarah McAdam. Campside Media's executive producers are Josh Dean, Adam Hoff, Matt Scher, and myself. Special thanks to executive producer Kyle Long, Ewen Lai Trumuen, and Campside's operations team, Doug Slaywin, Aaliyah Papes, and Allison Haney. And finally, thanks so much to Chris Radish, who wrote the book Run Bambi Run. If you're enjoying this show, please rate and review it on the Apple Podcast app. Thank you so much for listening. 